So if you couldn't pay Genghis Khan what you owed him, he would have you put to death. Now let's fast forward to ancient Rome, where a debtor, if he couldn't pay a creditor, uh, he, his spouse, and his children became indentured servants, or basically slaves. And they had to work for the creditor for up to five years to pay off the debt in manual labor. Uh, even in colonial uh, United States of America, we had debtor prisons where people who couldn't pay their debts were put into prison. Uh, and this lasted up until about the uh, War of 1812. After that, there was extreme poverty in the land, and these debtor prisons were overflowing uh, with people who were there through really no fault of their own. And finally, somebody came along and they said, hey, wait a minute. We need a method or a system where these people can get some sort of relief. Uh, if we lock them up, they're never going to be able to repay their debts. Hence, the United States federal bankruptcy laws. Welcome to another episode. I am Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. Today we're going to be talking about the federal bankruptcy laws. We're going to be talking about who qualifies, uh, what chapter might be best for you. We're going to be talking about who gets paid, who doesn't get paid, what's dischargeable, and what you get to keep. We're going to look at all the different chapters of bankruptcy, but we're going to focus on those that 95% of the people file. And that's for individual consumers, and that will either be a chapter 7 or a chapter 13. So if you enjoy the video, hit that like button. If you want to know more about legal topics in general, subscribe to the channel. If you got something to say, you have a comment, then put it below in the comment section. And as always, I love it when you share me on social media. And remember, I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. If you need advice specific to your legal situation, then you should lawyer up with an attorney in your area. So since about 1825, the United States has had federal bankruptcy laws. I declare bankruptcy! And they've been amended several times. Uh, most recently in 2005 was a significant shift or change in the United States bankruptcy law. Now the law provides for six different areas or six different chapters uh, where somebody can get bankruptcy relief. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, four of those, but we're not going to dwell on those today. We're going to dwell on the two main chapters, and that's chapter 7 and chapter 13. But the other chapters that exist include chapter 9, and that is a municipal bankruptcy. That's where cities actually file bankruptcy. There's chapter 11. That is for business bankruptcies, where businesses have to go in and file bankruptcy. There are chapter 12 bankruptcies, and that's for family farmers. Uh, and also chapter 15 bankruptcies. Those are international bankruptcies where people have debt in other countries. Now those chapters of relief are available, but it's not where most people file bankruptcy. The most common area of bankruptcy for consumers, and this could be an individual or a husband and wife, is in chapter seven 
and chapter 13. Now chapter 7 is considered a liquidation bankruptcy and what that means is essentially you're going to be allowed to keep certain exempt assets. There's certain uh, minimal level of assets that you get to keep and it's protected from creditors but the rest of the assets are going to be liquidated or sold and that money given to any of your unsecured creditors and we'll talk a little bit more about what all of that means in a chapter seven setting. The other bankruptcy for consumer debt is chapter 13, and that is called a reorganization or a essentially a debt consolidation bankruptcy. In a chapter 13, the debtor keeps all of their assets. However, they engage in a debt consolidation plan where they pay one payment every month, and it's the lion's share of their income, uh, to a bankruptcy trustee, and that individual pays off creditors uh, in certain proportions uh, relative to the plan that was approved by the court. Now in chapter 13 you keep your assets but this plan goes on for three and usually up to five years. So you're giving the bulk of your paycheck every month for five years to a bankruptcy trustee. However at the end of either a chapter 7 which is usually a lot quicker four to six months or a chapter 13, which usually takes five years, there is a discharge of the debt, a fresh start for the debtor, and that particular individual can start anew, uh, moving forward, hopefully in a much better financial situation. Now there are certain things that are common to all bankruptcy cases, whether they're in a chapter seven or a chapter 13, and we're gonna talk about those now. Uh, the first one is the filing of a bankruptcy petition. That is what is filed to initiate any bankruptcy. And this is filed in federal court. Note there are no state bankruptcy courts. This is done federally so that the effects of what you're doing is universal across the entire United States. Now the debtor normally files the petition. That's called a voluntary bankruptcy. There are areas where a creditor can actually file a bankruptcy petition against a debtor. Those are called involuntary bankruptcies, but they're very rare in the consumer setting. You normally see those uh, filed against businesses. Now this bankruptcy petition lists all assets and all debts of the debtor. Now note, I said all. Uh, certain people uh, want to not include certain assets in a bankruptcy. You can't do that. I've had clients say, well, I don't want to file bankruptcy against this person or that person. You don't get to choose. When you file bankruptcy, in addition to, of course, all your individual identifiers, uh, you have to include all assets and all debts. Now, the totality of all of your assets, uh, that is called the bankruptcy estate. And that is the totality of assets that creditors have to go against to seek payment. Uh, there are specific rules as to what creditors can do what types of things relative to those assets. And we're gonna talk about uh, that in more specificity here in a minute. There are also certain assets that are exempt and those are protected. The debtor can keep those assets. Uh, it wouldn't make sense to liquidate all assets of the debtor because they would be out on the street and they would need uh, government assistance in a different arena. So we allow debtors to keep certain exempt assets. The bankruptcy petition also includes a list of questions and these questions are designed to get at the behavior of the debtor just prior to filing bankruptcy. They look for fraud or what are called preferential transfers. Uh, like if somebody were getting ready to file bankruptcy and the day before they had $10,000 cash 
and they handed it to their sister. And then the day they filed, they said, yep, I've got zero dollars. Uh, that is not really honest. And so the questionnaires that go along with a bankruptcy petition are designed to look back at these types of behaviors and see if you've made any what they call preferential transfers. The next thing common to all bankruptcies, and this is the big one, the automatic stay. Immediately upon filing a federal bankruptcy petition, all collection efforts must stop. These are lawsuits, they must stop. These are collection letters, they must stop. These are executions or garnishments against wages or bank accounts, they must stop. Even phone calls to debtors must stop. The automatic stay happens, A, automatically upon filing of the a bankruptcy petition, and then stay, that means stop. All collection efforts must stop when you file a bankruptcy petition according to the automatic stay rules. And there are significant penalties for creditors who move forward uh, without court permission against the automatic stay. They can be fined uh, and penalized by the federal bankruptcy courts for violating the automatic stay rule. Now, secured creditors, those are creditors that have a piece of collateral attached to their debt will file uh, quite often a motion for relief from the automatic stay where the court grants them permission to go after their individual asset or collateral. Uh, but you can't do it without court permission. The next thing that happens is that your creditors are categorized. Uh, they are categorized as either secured creditors uh, or unsecured creditors that have a priority claim or just generally unsecured. Now those terms can be strange, but let me explain them. A secured creditor is a creditor uh, to which you owe a debt uh, for which they have collateral. Uh, think about a car loan or a home loan. Uh, you get a loan specific to buy a car. Uh, that is collateral for the debt, and if you don't pay it, they can repossess it. Those creditors are classified as secured creditors. The opposite of that is an unsecured creditor. That's a creditor that has no collateral whatsoever for the amount of money that you might owe them. Uh, think credit cards, think hospital debt. You owe the money, but they don't have a piece of collateral uh, that connects to the exact debt. When you're talking about unsecured creditors, there are priority creditors, and these are unsecured creditors that probably ought to get paid. Uh, you're generally talking about taxes and wages. If you owe somebody wages and they've worked in exchange for it, uh, that gets a priority in a bankruptcy estate. Uh, everyone else is a general unsecured creditor, and these are like credit cards, those types of things. Uh, and those debts are most generally discharged, hence the high interest rates we see associated with credit cards these days. Now the next concept is exempt property, and this is property that is protected under federal law. It's most relevant in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, because remember that's a liquidation bankruptcy where assets are sold. Uh, but the law provides for certain assets that a debtor gets to keep no matter what. Uh, and this is kind of a strange area because state law governs uh, how many and what amounts of exempt assets you can keep. Everything else is federal law. In fact, federal law has certain exemptions, uh, but states reserve the right to have their own exemptions or to allow a debtor to choose between federal exemptions and state exemptions. So this area is very fact dependent. This area is very specific to the individual state that you're in. 
So if you're considering filing bankruptcy, you'll want to consult with an attorney in your area about your exemptions. Now the concept of exemptions is just of course to provide the debtor with some basic assets from which to move forward. If we took absolutely everything from them, they wouldn't have a house or a car or anywhere to live or any money, and they would basically be destitute. So federal law allows them to keep certain assets. Like I mentioned, it's different in every state, but I'm going to give you the federal exemptions so you have kind of a starting point and a frame of reference. Now, the federal exemptions allow for equity in a home of up to $25,000. So that would be that amount uh, of money that you have paid down on your house compared to what it's worth. If you have a house uh, worth $100,000 and you owe $75,000 against it, they're not going to liquidate it because that $25,000 that you have is the exemption amount that is protected under federal bankruptcy law. Federal bankruptcy law also allows $4,000 towards a car. So if you have a car worth $4,000 or less, it is exempt and you get to keep it. Federal bankruptcy laws protect personal effects up to $13,000. And this is your couches and your TVs and your clothes and your furniture, stuff that isn't really worth a whole lot to anybody else anyway, and would only pull you know, basic garage sale values if it were liquidated or sold. Tools of the trade are protected for up to $2,500. And these are things that you need to use to be able to work in your profession. Wedding rings are protected under federal law for up to $1,700. So they're not going to come in and rip the ring off of your finger as long as it's not worth more than $1,700. And last but not least, there is a wild card exemption that you can apply to anything. Most people will apply it to their checking account or their money or cash on hand. And under federal law, that's up to $1,300. And those are the basic exemptions that are allowed uh, debtors, even in a chapter seven bankruptcy liquidation scenario. And remember, if you're filing as a married couple, those numbers double because there's two individuals. The next major thing that happens in all bankruptcies is a United States trustee is appointed. And this is an individual, it's usually an attorney, that is appointed by the government to oversee the administration of your bankruptcy and make sure that you are following all of the federal laws uh, relevant to the chapter that you filed under. In a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, this is the guy who would go in and take any uh, non-exempt property and sell it and then take the proceeds and pay it to the general unsecured creditor. And pursuant to federal bankruptcy law, there is a meeting. It's called a 341 meeting where all the debtors have to go in and be subject to questions from this bankruptcy trustee. He may ask you questions about your petition. He may ask you uh, questions about values. Uh, and he may look specifically at transactions that you made uh, before filing your bankruptcy that might be called into question. And the transactions I'm talking about are called preferential transfers. Uh, and they'll look uh, first within the 90 days preceding your bankruptcy and say, did you prefer one creditor over another? Uh, you may have only had $3,000 and you're like, you know what? I want to give this all to my dentist. I don't want to think about any of my other creditors. I want to give it all to my dentist. Well, unfortunately, you don't have the right to choose. Uh, there is a system of federal bankruptcy laws that dictates who gets paid in what order. And if you prefer one creditor over another within 90 days of your bankruptcy, uh, that can be undone. 
And that 90 days extends to up to a year if the transaction involves an insider. And that's generally a family member. Uh, and I've seen this happen before where a person is uh, filing bankruptcy. They have like $3,000 in the bank and they're going to say, well, I'm just going to give it all to my dad. He loaned me money, uh, so I'm going to give him all $3,000 and I'm not going to give anything to my other creditors. Well, he's an insider because he's a family member and for up to a year prior to your bankruptcy, the U.S. trustee can come in and take that money back from your dad saying, you can't do that. You preferred one creditor over other creditors and that's a violation of federal bankruptcy law. A couple of final things that are required in all bankruptcies and that is that you attend a credit counseling course. Uh, it's supposed to be an instructional course concerning personal finance. You have to do that within six months of filing your bankruptcy petition. Also for a chapter seven, you can't have filed a previous chapter seven or received a discharge uh, within eight years of your filing of your current petition. The final thing that's common to all bankruptcies that go to fruition is the discharge. And that is where at the end of the case, uh, any remaining debt is eliminated and discharged and you don't owe it. Uh, this will be both in a chapter seven scenario and a chapter 13 scenario. But you should note that there are certain debts that are not dischargeable. That means that even if you file bankruptcy, they won't be discharged. These are generally taxes. These are monies that you may owe a court for a fine uh, or court cost. Uh, these include student loans. Under very, very rare scenarios, uh, can you actually get a student loan discharged? It is generally non-dischargeable, as is child support, family support obligations. You can't discharge that in bankruptcy. Uh, otherwise, I suspect people would be doing that or trying to do that all the time. No, you have to pay your child support. Bankruptcy doesn't help in that scenario. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the differences between a chapter seven and a chapter 13 bankruptcy. And one of the main things, and this law changed in 2005, was to implement means testing. And that is to see whether you are a can pay debtor. Do you have the ability to pay back your debts? Uh, and what they do is they look at your income, the amount of money that you make on a monthly basis, uh, and they compare it to the median average of the state that you are living in. If you are under the median average, you automatically qualify for a chapter seven liquidation bankruptcy if that's what you choose to do. Now, if you are above your state's median income, then a complicated formula comes into play and they determine uh, the amount of money that you make and they compare it to the amount of debts that you have and there's debt floor ratios and all kinds of crazy things and they decide whether you pass the means test. Uh, and if they deem that you are a can pay debtor, that you can pay back your debts, you will be disqualified from a chapter seven and forced to file a chapter 13 bankruptcy. And as I mentioned before, in a chapter seven, that's the liquidation bankruptcy where you file the petition, uh, you get your exempt property, the rest, if any, is liquidated. And in a lot of cases, there are no property uh, that is in excess of the exemption amount. So there's nothing to liquidate. Your creditors get nothing. Uh, but at the end of the chapter seven, you get your discharge where all your debts are discharged unless the non-dischargeable kind, uh, and then you get your fresh start. The benefit of the chapter seven is it's over in about four to six months. It's quick, uh, you get your fresh start very, relatively quickly, uh, and you get to keep all of your wages. Now you may lose a little bit of your property if you have property in excess of the exemption amounts, but you get to keep your monthly wage. Juxtaposed is the chapter 13 reorganization plan. 
where you enter into a plan uh, where you have to generally pay the secured creditors. Uh, you have to come up with a plan to pay a portion of your unsecured creditors back. Uh, and once that plan is approved uh, by the bankruptcy court, then you make one payment. In essence, your debts are consolidated. You make one payment to the bankruptcy trustee and he takes the money and distributes it amongst your creditors according to your plan. Uh, the benefit is that you keep all of your property. Uh, you don't lose your assets. What you lose is your income. You're given a little bit of money to live on, but the lion's share of it goes to the bankruptcy trustee to pay debts off. And these plans last for a minimum of three years, but in most cases, it's a five-year plan. So you are paying the bulk of the wages that you earn for five years uh, to receive a discharge under a Chapter 13 plan. You most often see Chapter 7s with people who really have little or no assets. Uh, and you see Chapter 13s with people who have accumulated quite a bit of assets and they usually have a decent wage because uh, they have to be considered a can-pay debtor. Uh, you have to be able to fund the plan uh, that you enter into in a Chapter 13 scenario. But in Chapter 13s, you'll normally see people who are uh, needing to catch up on mortgage payments or behind on their taxes. Uh, they just basically need a little bit of help to reorganize their debt so that they can climb out of the hole uh, that they've been put in. So last but not least, when we're comparing a Chapter 7 and a Chapter 13, some things to think about. Uh, in Chapter 7, that's the liquidation. You lose non-exempt assets. Uh, now, there is also a caveat um, that you have certain secured assets, right? You have a car uh, that you may owe money on. You have a house that you may owe, owe money on. Um, if you don't have uh, equity in either of those uh, in excess of your exemption amount, you can keep the asset if you enter into a reaffirmation agreement with your creditor. You can say, I've got a car, um, it's uh, worth uh, $10,000 and I owe $6,000 on it so I can keep that $4,000 worth of equity. So I wanna keep my car, I'm gonna enter into an agreement to continue to pay uh, that particular creditor. So in a chapter seven scenario, you can maintain secured assets if you reaffirm the debt with the creditor. In a chapter 13 scenario, that's not an issue because you have a plan. You are going to keep your assets. Now, if you keep those assets, of course you keep the debt if it's secured uh, collateral. So you'll have to pay under a chapter 13 bankruptcy plan your secured creditors, but the rest are paid according to your repayment plan. Comparing and contrasting uh, chapter seven with chapter 13, chapter seven, you get to keep your wages. Chapter 13, you have to pay those wages to the bankruptcy trustee who will distribute those to your unsecured creditor. And last but not least, chapter sevens are quick, four to six months where chapter 13s go on for up to five years. So it specifically depends on your scenario. Uh, if you don't have uh, a lot of assets anyway, maybe a chapter seven makes the most sense. If you're older and you've acquired a great deal of assets, you have a decent wage, uh, maybe a repayment plan for three to five years makes the most sense so that you can maintain the assets you've acquired throughout your lifetime. Well, that's the summary on United States bankruptcy laws in chapter seven and chapter 13. I hope you have enjoyed the information. If you did, hit that like button. If you wanna know more about this or other legal topics, uh, subscribe to the channel. If you got a comment, put it down below in the comment section. And last but not least, I love it when you share me on social media. Hey, thanks for watching. I'm Joshua Roberts, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. 
Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this